Thank you. There is a, um, a song that really captures what we're going to talk about today and just sort of is the whole message in, in that. It's that song. That's really where we're going. So thank you guys so much for that. I was singing along with it during rehearsal this morning in the tech booth, and the tech guys and I both were baffled by the fact that I was not asked to be on stage to sing that with you. I'd, if there's anything, you know, I've loved so much about Kevin, but that has always been a big mystery to me when I have this giftedness and I don't get to, to really share that ministry with you. So, you know, for whatever reason, um, it's just a quiet thing. No, that's, you know, I'm not a songwriter and not a, obviously not a singer. You get those guys, I think they were just patronizing me, but, um, but I love music and that's always been just a huge part of my life and uh, th there was a season of my life uh, years ago I felt like that that was sort of taken away uh, and I was listening to a lot of different kind of music but I didn't know how to express my faith through that and I didn't know and we're going to talk just a moment we're going to touch on that in the in the message uh, just uh, that it's something more than entertainment and then the Lord gave that back uh, and it's just been this beautiful thing that, that God's done. And there's so many times that Kevin's led me in worship uh, here, and I, I, I appreciate that because I'll be honest with you. I mean, I, I come to hear me preach, sure, but no, I really come to worship. That's uh, And if I miss, you know, uh, like if we're on vacation, we typically try to find a church somewhere. But if I don't have that worship experience, I feel like something – is is out of sync you know that my rhythm's knocked out for the week so uh, i really love being here for that and 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 what god does I, I don't have that gifting you know but one of the things i am just really good at that god's just built into me without even trying is that if you and i talk together and we work through issues uh in a, maybe in a counseling environment or just as friends and maybe you take a chance and you really risk putting yourself out there and you tell me something that nobody else knows. Maybe you tell me something that you're ashamed of or you're embarrassed about. God has given me this ability to not identify you with that, with your behavior or your past or your failures or your mistakes from that moment forward. Sometimes we're hesitant to share with one another because we think now every time you see me that's what you're going to think about or that's the new filter that you will see me through my gift is that that doesn't happen you're the same as you were before and i'm slowly realizing that god sees me in the same way because i've got my junk you know <laughs> i've got things i've got to work through and i've got things about me and and there is a, a part of us that's hesitant to go to the Lord and just to say, God, I just want to confess, and I just want to say this out loud, and I don't want to be general about it. You know, when you pray one way or the other, when you say, God, bless me, and the Lord's like, what does that even mean? What do you mean? Bless you how, specifically, what are you asking for? What is the ask? What, where are you going? And then on the other side of that, it's the same thing. Well, I, Lord, I just confess to you I'm a sinner, and Lord, I just really messed up, and just pray um, that I would be able to embrace your forgiveness and understand that. And the Lord's like, what, is, what does that even mean that you sent? What, do, what did you do? It's okay for you to be real specific 
about that in your conversations with the Lord. In fact, I think that's what he prefers. And uh, so many beautiful things happen uh, in those moments. And when you risk sharing with another person or for your story uh, to be revealed, and then what do you do next? Where do you go with that? You know, I kind of mentioned Kevin because it's, it's, a, it's a milestone for us and a, kind of a, it's a sweet time for us to celebrate uh, the relationship we've had. We've all got stories. We've all got something going on under the hood, or, you know, behind the scenes. And Kevin's just like the rest of us. He's had those things. I've had those things. So have you. Uh, but when I see him turn his attention to the Lord, and when I see him lean into that, sometimes through music and sometimes through other ways, and go, God, I'm just going to trust you in the hard places and in the dark times and know that you're there for me. And that's what today's message is about. We're going to wrap up this series. We've been studying the book of Esther together, and we've called this invisible because it seems like all through the story we can't see God, but he's doing things invisibly. In fact, during this entire story, it seems as if uh, King Ahasuerus and Haman are the ones in charge. I mean, they're leading the parade in every event, right? And every, the, everything just seems to be fueled by their decisions and preferences and their, even their moods and, and, and all of that. But in the end, as we see this story come back around, it becomes real clear that it's God, that it's God who is the one dictating events and bringing his people salvation. I see it in Esther's life. I see it in Mordecai's life. I see it in my life. Uh, and oftentimes, uh, as we share life together, I see, it, I see it in your life too. You know, the thing that contradicts that or that's difficult to get past is that it's real, real easy uh, to view powerful or popular or positional people in your life as the ones who are calling the shots. They're the ones who could change everything with just a click of the button, right? And when I say positional, I mean like your boss, your professor, your coach, your mama, your daddy, your wife, your husband, you know, somebody's in a position of influence or maybe even authority in your life and you think, oh, I've got to keep them happy. And you ever, you ever do that? You ever been in a meeting and you think, Oh, they just sighed real heavy, and uh, what does that mean? And why did you, did you, you know, are you in a bad mood? Is it about something else? Is it about me? You don't like me? You know, and we, we just do that all the time. And we see those people, uh, or somebody that's, like I say, somebody that's popular, or somebody that's just powerful, and I'm like, those are the people who control everything. We have to remember, and if you've got any takeaway from this series, I hope that you would remember God is the ultimate king and that he holds our entire existence in his hands. It's him. It's him. I want you to notice what is said near the end of this story. And I'm trying to pull this around full circle and think, okay, how do we land not just, you know, the, the series, you know, where do, we, where do we take that and we just kind of stop or... Uh, do we see this fullness to it? Do we see that there's a complete circle uh, that takes us back? And I think it does. 
And so today, I'm going to kind of end where I began uh, with Esther. So what we've been doing is going along chronologically and seeing how these events fold, and it's kind of like a television show where something stops and you go, oh, we gotta wait till next week, and so you record that, or what, you know, you, you wait and then you see the next episode. We've kind of been doing that with Esther. We, we go along and we see, oh, where's this gonna, you know, how in the world is she gonna get out of this? You know, there's, wow, there's no good solution, or this is impossible, and a lot of shows are built like that as they tell that narrative, you know, or a novel works that way too, I guess. Um, so what we're going to do today, instead of me just going to the very last chapter and working through that, I'm going to back up because it seems to me that the way this, un, you know, that it is, is that there is this moment, there's this climax to the story, it's a turning point where everything seems to shift and you know how it's going to unfold. And then as you read those last couple of chapters, you see the practical applications of that. You see, oh, well, now that the good guys are going to win, here's how it happens. And you see that in movies sometimes, right? You know, you see, oh, here's the big thing. And you know after that, they're going to land the airplane. They're going to get out of the dungeon. They're going to, you know, win the girl. They're going to do, you know, oh, whatever it is. So I'm, I'm pulling back to chapter 7, verse 7. And I want to read to you what I think is one of, not the, but one of the defining moments uh, in this story, in this event. And I'll go ahead and tell you... Uh, what I think is probably the, and you can agree or disagree about this, what, what I think is maybe, I don't know how you, because there's so many moments where things move along and the, and the story is pushed forward by this, but I think one of the big moments is when Esther finally makes this decision, I'm in, I'm going to do it. And she says that, that little phrase, I think with a sigh. I don't think she says it courageously looking at it, the sunrise or you know or anything i think she just says it with plump shoulders and resignation in her voice and she says okay i'll do it and if i perish then i perish if this is going to kill me then i guess this is how i'm going to go and it probably will but i'm going to go forward and she takes that little seed of faith just that little bit that she's got that she's mustered up and with all of her courage which maybe isn't a lot at this point and she says, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to move my life in this direction, even though looks like this is not going to end well for me. Uh, it's not just the only option I have. There's other things I could probably do. I could run away. I could do this. I could do that. You know. And she probably entertains those. And, and you do too, right? You think about all these different ways. What I could do is I could get in my car. I could, I could just drive to Mexico, I could, I could have a nice life there, I could get a job at an IHOP, and I could, you know, I mean, you know and you just start, you, you do that, you play those stories out, and you think, that's really not going to work, and so you come up with another scenario, she does what seems to be the best thing to do next, but I think it's her most faithful and beautiful moment uh, in the story, so in verse 7 of chapter 7, here's what happens. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they had been drinking wine. I mean, he just, you ever had to leave the room? 
said, I think, you know what? I just can't talk to you right now. I, gotta, I just got to walk away. So he walks outside in the garden. He walks around. And he's been drinking a little too much. So he kind of needs to get a little steady. He kind of comes. So he comes back in uh, from the garden. As Haman, as he's walking in, Haman is falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, ah, it's not in there. It's, it's in the Hebrew. You just got to trust me on this. That's my wife. That's the queen. Uh, as they were drinking wine, he's falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in front of me, in my own house? This is not going well. Not Haman's best day, right? I mean, he's just not having a good day. Um, it, listen to this. This is so powerful. As the word left the mouth of the king... They covered Haman's face. There's a couple of points of irony in this story, and this is one of them, that what Haman wanted everybody to see was his face. He was such a proud man, and he wanted everybody to see his face and to bow to him. And it's like the first action as he begins to fall, and, and this just all comes apart. The wheels are off. His life just becomes more than chaotic. He's doomed. The first action they take against him is they cover that face. We don't want to see your face uh, anymore. So that's what happens. Uh, the, the other thing I think that's kind of ironic is uh, what's going on here. This is in Haman in typical Near Eastern fashion. It's a little odd to us. We wouldn't do this. Um, but he was probably... You know, he just fell down and he grabbed the feet of Esther. This was kind of a custom. And he would kiss them and just beg for forgiveness. So Haman goes out. I mean, um, um, Ahasuerus goes out into the garden. He's trying to calm down, cool down, make a, you know, make a good decision here. What's the next call? And he kind of pulls himself together. He walks back in. And there's Haman. This guy who he's finding out all this stuff about that he had trusted and that he had given all this authority and position. And he's kissing his wife's feet. And he's just, he jumps to the next conclusion and goes, you know what, that's it. I'm, <laughs> if I wasn't done with you before now, well, I'm done with you now. You know, I mean, this is just this, this awkward moment. I was on staff at a church once and the pastor, you know, nice guy, but he's, you know, everybody's quirky. I'm into cars and I'm into, you know, things like that. And you think, well, that's kind of weird. Uh, but this guy was into reflexology. And what that is, is it that you, this, this, and some of you, there's a lot of legitimacy to it, I'm sure, that there are these pressure points in your feet and other places, and so you press those, and it relieves symptoms in your body, headaches or whatever. So I'm like in my office, which is in this real old building, and I come over to the new building of this, this office, and there's the pastor's office and the receptionist's office, Anyway, so I, I come around into the pastor's office. He's got this couch, couch in there that he's used for counseling. And the receptionist is lying on the couch. And her feet are in the pastor's lap. And he's pushing her. He's holding her feet. And I'm like, oh, hey, you know what? I'll, I'll come back. Not a big issue. I just want to know if I could use the van. But he jumps up and she jumps up and they're flustered. And I don't even think anything until they jump up. And then I'm thinking, what's going on here? You know, and it was kind of a funny moment because... It was just awkward. You know, you ever been in those awkward moments where you just want to say, I can explain everything, you know. 
this is Haman at that moment. He's like, oh, no, no, no. What, what, I'm just, I'm, yeah, I'm kissing her feet. But you know what? What that's about is I'm just scared to death. And I know she's the one. And it's just ironic to me that what was really important to Haman in his arrogance and his pride and in his sin, his selfishness, his narcissism, what he really wanted, the thing that was important to him, that everybody bow down to him. That's what made him feel like Haman. I'm the God. And what really, really bugged him is that he was walked through the town. And you know, can, can you imagine what a rush that must have been for him if that's how you're wired? And as you walk, people just fall down in front of you and bow. I mean, that, he loved that. He just really liked that. I used to think back in the day that it must have been such a feeling of power for worship leaders when they would stand in front of a congregation and they would say, standing together as we sing. And they would just do this little thing and we'd all get up. Oh, that's power. And at the end of the song, they would go, and we would all sit back down. Yeah, that's a Hamanish-like experience right there. That, you know, so everybody's bound, and, and Haman's just, he's going through. This is how he walked. And he was just like, yeah, everybody bow down, bow down. And then there was Mordecai, who would just stand there. And I don't know if Mordecai was just really bold. I mean, that stuck out. I mean, he was just so out there for him to do that. And most of us try to find subtle ways to express our faith or to take a stand. Maybe you've been convicted that you need to just stop and thank the Lord for the meal when you're in a restaurant. Maybe you're in the diner for lunch one day, you know, at work or at that school cafeteria. And you think, well, Lord, I just really made this command. I just want to stop and thank you. But this is just this little mini worship. But all these people are around me. Do you find covert ways, right? To, you know, Lord, I just want to thank you. You do the head scratch prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this food. And nobody saw me and they didn't know what I was doing. Or, you know, you, you find these ways. Mordecai's not like that. Maybe he's standing there, and maybe he's just shaking. He's thinking, I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't believe I'm doing this, but I'm not going to bow. I just can't. I just can't. That would be such a contradiction of who I am, and it would just be denying, and I just, boy, I wish I could just stay low and kind of just be one of those quiet, just secret disciples like most Christians are in our culture now. You know, we just we kind of hide our faith as best we can. Maybe he was embarrassed. Maybe he was just scared, but he stood. He stood. And I think it was so, uh, because everybody else has got their heads bowed, and they're all looking down, and they're just like, don't notice me. Don't anybody look at me. You know, just let's get him walking past, and that be over, and get back to my day. Mordecai, I think he and Haman, every now and then, their eyes would meet, and they would just lock eyes. You know, and Mordecai, would you could just see him trying to maybe communicate just through his countenance, just through his eyes. This is not about you. I'm not trying to defy you. I'm not trying to get on your bad side. I'm not trying to make you mad. I just can't do this. I'm sorry. I can't bow down. I think Haman would look at him like, you know, you, do you not understand? Do you know what I could do to you? And I think that just that quick, silent conversation probably took place over and over and just made Haman furious. 
he was in a rage about this. He would, he would be so happy about everything in his day, but he would go home at the end of the day, and because this one thing didn't go his way, this one guy wouldn't bow down, that's all he could think about. But isn't that the, the way it is with us? You know, there can be a hundred things that you feel good about or whatever. One thing can just beat you up and you just, you know, you kind of keep coming back to you. That's where Haman was. He wouldn't bow. Uh, Mordecai wouldn't bow. It's just really ironic to me that here is Haman who demanded that. And now he is the one who is bowing before this young Jewish woman, Esther. And he's afraid, but he's also incredibly humiliated. The thing he wanted, he's having to submit and do. Well, this text, this this whole story makes a powerful point about whom we look to for hope and peace. And for some of you, maybe it's not even a whom, it's a what. Maybe it's your computer, maybe it's your phone, maybe it's a habit, maybe it's an addiction, maybe it's a chemical, maybe it's sex, maybe it's, I mean, it could be a hundred things where you go to and that's your place where you get soothed. That's your place where you get comforted and you're able to cope. And so you just manage some of the stresses and insecurities and shames of life and you go to that place. And maybe you've been doing it ever since you were a little boy, ever since you were a girl. And that becomes what you look to for hope and peace. For some of you, it's a person. You know, it's your boyfriend. It's your girlfriend that gives you peace. Uh, It it can be a a parent or a child. And, you know, that's kind of okay in one context, in one sense. Uh, I get that, that we get encouraged from each other, and that's, that's all right. But at the end of the day, do you look to God? Do you look to the Lord? Because there is no one, there is no person, there is no thing that can bring hope and peace like Jesus. Nobody can do that. Because he knows you inside and out and he's still so crazy about you. He knows about all your stuff. But he loves you and he pursues you and he longs for you to get past whatever that is between you and him and just let him flow into your life so that you have that peace. And he's the only one that can do that. The deliverance of the Jewish people in a way represents or is like a metaphor of the deliverance that all of us as followers uh, can experience with Christ. This story of Esther is almost like a precursor you know, to the story of Jesus. Jesus is the better Esther and Mordecai, uh, who being perfect, laid down his life to save his people. And there was no last minute reprieve, there was no changing of the course, It went fully all the way through his death. Whereas Esther says, if I perish, I perish. And we think she's likely, the odds are she's about to die. The way the story should have ended is like, and so they killed, they just thought, we're we're so tired of messing with this. Just kill Esther, 
kill Mordecai, just kill them all. And that was the plan. Everybody, men, women, boys and girls, children, babies, everybody, kill them all. Just exterminate them. Genocide, just that'll fix the problem. But then the story takes this unusual turn. Jesus prophesied again and again and again, this is what's going to happen to me. And even his best friend said, oh, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. We're going to crown you king, and you're going to cause this revolution, and we're going to overcome the Romans, and everything's going to be good. And Jesus is like, no, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucial. I'm going to die for you. I'm going to die a substitutionary death on your behalf. But it's through that death, it's through the cross, that that life begins. There's always a death before a resurrection. And then in three days, he brought life out of that death. So that when we die to ourselves, when we are crucified with Christ, we live in a completely different life than we could have ever known before we could have ever experienced this is a picture of what's coming i think this was probably the lowest point in esther's life and she had been through a lot but this was lower than when she lost her parents and she was orphaned it's lower than her being a member of this captured nation who are quickly losing their identity And now it looks like they're going to lose their very lives. I mean, all these things that happened in her life, things that happened in your life that you thought, well, this is, nothing's ever happened this bad to me before. And I I don't know how I'm going to get past this. And then you do. Esther had gotten through so many things, but now she comes to this moment where it's like, well, this is kind of it. This is the lowest I've ever been. Listen to this this scripture. there's a parallel. Psalm 3 3 says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I'm going to challenge some of you. You know, maybe you want to write that down or tap it in your phone or just put it somewhere. Maybe memorize this. One little verse, so that when all these li- when these moments come and you think I've never had a moment this bad or this low, the Holy Spirit would have this verse in in your cerebral cortex. You know, He would have this in your memory, and you could pull this out. And uh, you're driving, and you can't read the Bible, or you can't. You know, then God's got this tool to use. So memorize Psalm three three. And I'll tell you what this is about. I think this Psalm was written during the very lowest point in David's life. The worst possible moment in his life. Absalom, his son, whose name ironically means father of peace, revolted against his own father. He started a revolution, a rebellion. He seized the throne. He sent his father into exile. And then he forms a posse to go after his dad. It's like, well, that's not good enough. I want him dead. So he sends these people with the intent to kill David. So David, who was the king of Israel, is hiding in caves. And he's, he's just surviving this. 
And then, if things are bad enough, a Benjamite, you know how those Benjamites are, this Benjamite starts throwing rocks at David, who was the king, you know, he's throwing rocks at him, and he's shouting these insults, and he's just shaming David in front of everybody. This is happening publicly. Uh, and one of David's, law, you know, even at your worst times, hopefully, maybe you'll still have a few close friends. Somebody's going to hang in there with you. Well, there was this guy, and he was there with, with David, and this just, he just couldn't believe this was happening. He was still loyal to him. So he says this, why should this dead dog insult the king? Are you kidding me? David, give me the word, I'll cut his head off. He just took this offense on himself. David's response is real touching to me. He said, no, no, let him throw the rocks. Perhaps God will have some mercy on me. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe with the Lord or whatever and... And uh, something happens to you and you think, well, that's fine. That's what I deserve. You just go all Eeyore, you know, on life. And you just think, that's okay. Somebody drank all the milk. I didn't deserve it anyway. I mean, you know, and we just do that. There's a part of my personality that I can go there. I can have the biggest pity party and invite only me because nobody else wants to come. You know, and, and you just like... We're doomed. It won't work. We'll all be killed. And I deserve it because I'm a loser anyway. I mean, you know, and David's having that moment. He's at his lowest point. Have you ever felt that low? I want you to get a picture of where David is. He's a failure as a king. He's lost his position, his job, his vocation and career are over. In fact, he's lost everything. His wealth, his power, friends, and probably the worst thing, David feels like a failure as a father. This is his son chasing him. It's a failure as a father. Or maybe even worse than that, He felt like he had failed God. God, I remember standing in that that line. I remember I wasn't even invited when you were going to choose a king, and they came and got me, and I'm just kind of, I don't know what's going on, and you picked me, and I'm just like 12, 14 years old, and you say, I'm going to be the king of Israel, and then all these things happen, and I get to this place, and I make mistakes, and I blow it, but now... I have failed you. Everything you wanted for this nation, everything you want to do in my life, now it's never going to happen. That's just, he just felt like a failure in every way. So he told his friend, let that Benjamite just keep throwing rocks at me because probably God's behind it. I've lost God too. We've always, there have been times, and there will be times, we've all faced a real failure. And someone around us starts throwing rocks at us. To make it even worse, you're having a terrible day, and a coworker decides they need to comment about that. A family member, a friend, somebody speaks up and says, yeah, you know what else? 
your hair looks funny today too. And you do, and you're just like, just throw rocks. Just go ahead, just come on, bring it on. You know, it does, isn't that weird the way that happens? But it does, because the enemy knows that's when you're at your most vulnerable. And if he can just hurt you, just throw one more rock, it may be that tipping point that sends you back into an old sin or an old habit, an old shell, something that you lean back into and you begin to pull away from the Lord instead of drawing toward him. Here's what I love about David. At that moment, his worst moment, he says, the Lord is my shield. The Lord is my shield. The word shield is majin, which is kind of a play on words. And I'll explain briefly in just a moment. But it literally means shield and protector. The word itself in Hebrew tells us how God becomes a shield. How he is David's shield and how he was Esther's shield and how he wants to be a shield for you too. I've told you, you know, before the way Hebrew's written is there's these characters, you know, it's almost like pictures in each letter that you put them together and there's the word and it gives it this depth and this meaning. So each letter is kind of important. This word is spelled M-E-M, which means he will protect us. The first letter points to the fact that he will protect us with his, with revealed knowledge, meaning his word. God will protect you through his word word. He will be a shield to you. And if you just soak this up, if you just read this, it becomes a shield. And as he speaks words into your heart, you know, there's this logos and there's this rhema and these attacks come and then the rocks, come, you know, and it's like, oh, but his word is a shield. That's why I said, I think you ought to memorize that verse because that's going to be a part of this shield that God uh, puts in front of you. The next letter is Gimel, which tells us that it comes from his loving kindness. See, God is so affectionate towards you. He loves you. He likes you. He longs to be in a relationship, an even deeper relationship with you. final letter is Nun, N-U-N, and it reveals that we receive this protection by faith. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that this is a Hebrew, you know, word, and it's kind of a play on words. The word Negan, this is Megan, this is Megan, which means music or specifically music played on a string instrument. God likes guitar. Remember, David played a string instrument. So I think, and you see this all through the Psalms, that when David is stressed, when David is tired, when he's hurt, when he's lonesome, when he's scared, when he's in this hard thing, he would get his guitar out and he would just start playing worship songs. And he had this talent to be able to, to write them. So he would just sing to the Lord and through that would come peace. Folks, music is so powerful. Now, I'm not against any form of music. I think that's probably more neutral than we realize. Uh, but when you're going through a difficult season or you're having a hard day, 
get in the car <laughs> and just listen to and sing along with praise and worship music. We have a great station uh, right here in our town. Jonathan Unthank, you know, one of our members is, is one of the announcers. And, and just tune in. If you've got serious, go to the message. Just if you've got CDs, whatever it is, Spotify, get on there and just tell Alexa to play this or do that. Whatever works. For, but get in, get, pour yourself into these moments in your room, uh, wherever you are. You're going to be lifted up and you're going to be reminded of God's love and presence. David is saying that not only is God my shield and protector, he's my peace through tough times. And sometimes that peace comes through music. Not only is the Lord his shield, but he says God is like the lifter of my head. And the word lifter is miram. And David, like Esther, is totally discouraged. He feels completely defeated. He doesn't know where to go. He doesn't know what to do next because there is nothing to do. But he had just a few friends and some followers who were still there, and I'm sure they tried to encourage him. And that's helpful, and we should do that for one another. But it was the Lord who lifted his head. And you need to hear from the Lord more than anyone else. We usually look all around us at family and friends and people for encouragement. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's okay. But ultimately, you're going to have to hear God's voice speaking to you. Because it just does something. It goes to a deeper place. And it becomes stronger and more meaningful than all the other voices around us. That's, uh, it's really kind of cool. It's interesting that this is in a participle form. So this creates this picture of God continually lifting up David's head. It's almost like God just takes David. You ever had somebody just take your face in their hands and just kind of say, listen. You ever did that with a child or with someone that you love? And you just, you just take that, that sweet face in your hands. And he just lifts up David's head. And he says, David, I know things are terrible right now. I know you don't know what to do. And I know you feel like a failure. And you want to give up. Look at me. Look at me. David, keep your eyes on me. I'm going to keep lifting up your head. I'm here. And I'm not going anywhere. Esther's going to find out that Haman's not in charge. The very man who wanted everyone, especially Mordecai, to bow down to him will eventually bow down at her feet. When we're discouraged or frightened or worried, it's really easy to look all around for the natural places we're going to get encouragement. But the only real source of peace, folks, it's, it's from our shield. It's the revealed word of God. It's his loving kindness and his grace. But it takes none in you and it takes faith him to be released in our life through uh, it, for that shield that's the trigger that's the that's the catalyst and, and we saw that in the very first week of this series that Esther is this unexpected young woman and it's a different book from all the other books in 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 the Old Testament because God seems so invisible 
And I told you, you know, when we began looking at this together that Esther confuses us a little bit because maybe she had this deep sense of abandonment or rejection. She'd lost her parents. She'd lost most of her friends and family. Uh, people have forgotten. I mean, she just thought, God, I don't even think you even see me anymore. So she doesn't make this big, gutsy, courageous decision. I'm going to follow the Lord. I'm going to take a bold stand. She just makes rational choices. She just does the next available thing that seems like the smartest move. And she trades, I'm absolutely going to die, for maybe I won't die if I do this. And she seems to find hope, and she just advances spiritually, not in one big leap, but step by step, getting braver and more certain as she moves forward in her faith. Doesn't that sound a lot more like your journey and my journey? And today may be one of those places where you think, Lord, I need a shield. I need someone to lift up my head. But I don't have this big Daniel-like faith. I don't have this big, you know, like Mordecai standing there. I'm not that guy right now. Where are you in your journey? What is the next? Just the next. Don't worry about the next 10, the next 100 steps. What is the next step of faith that you can take towards the Lord because maybe today is the day for you to take that step the next step towards Jesus I told you in the beginning I think the author wrote everything in this story intentionally so he didn't accidentally forget to mention God or prayer or scripture <laughs> He could have left out all those embarrassing details about Esther that would have just been disgraceful. No, I think he wrote it just like he wrote it for a reason. While the story is obviously about Israel's deliverance from death and extinction and all of that and how he does that, it's also, it just reveals that imperfect circumstances, like maybe the one you're in, and imperfect people like me, like you, are the ones that God uses. Real life people like us, not made up heroes and heroines who, you know, Batman and Wonder Woman and all these people who just seem to have it together and are pretty powerful. No, he just uses guys and gals like us. And sometimes we get to the place where we have to trust God that he's going to use us in spite of our broken past, the failures and the mistakes that we've done. Esther would have nothing to brag about. She's this lovely young lady uh, in many ways, no doubt. But she's really a mess. She's not where she ought to be. She's not doing what she should have done. She's not characterized as a woman of faith or of prayer or the woman of the word. She's just chosen to be queen. She just happens to be in that position but her life is really messy and here's what I've learned after years of living my own life and years of pastoring everybody's life is messy whatever you're covering up or scared of or facing you're not unique you're not terminal unique you're not special we've all gone through and will continue to go through things so here's the deal bring your mess to Jesus and let him be your shield.
hope that today, this afternoon, you'll begin to let him in and let that healing begin. And through that healing, you'll begin to see the solutions and the way back to the abundant life that he longs for you to have. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. And that grace is released. It's triggered by your faith. You think, well, I just really don't have a lot of faith right now. That's okay. That's okay. Don't worry about that yet. Just take what you do have. Just whatever it is you have. Just point it towards him. That is the message of Esther. It's all about hope. It's all about grace. I would love if my story were written to be like Daniel. <laughs> to be one of those heroes of the Bible who just seemed to like, he always did the right thing. He always, oh my goodness. I'm not that guy. I'm a lot like Esther and David and Moses and Paul and all of the other characters in the Bible. We are imperfect human beings stumbling our way into God's view in spite of ourselves. So if you're like Esther too and you need grace, he is not as invisible as you might think. He's here. He sees you. And he cares. Let me pray a prayer of blessing over you. And, and just pray that God would somehow give you the courage just to bring that next thing. Just that whatever that step is, even if... You think, Dan, it's not going to be a big old step. I'm not going to just jump off the porch and it's just going to be a baby step. It's okay. Take that step today. I've said before, and it's, it's a little preachery sounding, but, you know, if there's a thousand steps between you and Jesus, you take that one and he'll take 999 to get to you. Let's stand. And when I say amen, I'm going to ask Kevin, if he doesn't mind, and his children, if they would, to step right up here so that you get a chance to personally tell them, hey, we really love you and appreciate you. There's so many things that he does behind the scenes that you'll never know about and so many things he does up front. Um, that that help us to be the church in this community that God wants us to be. And I know you probably, and many of you want to say that to him one-on-one. -on -one. So we're going to give you a chance just to do that uh, in, in a moment. Father, I want to thank you for today. I thank you for your grace uh, in our lives and how that comes through the faith um, that you've given us. And for some of us today, we've got a big old resource, you know, of faith. Uh, and we're ready to do something big and bold Others, not so much. We're going to take a medium step or just one step or a little step. And we may break into a run once that happens. When that happened in Esther's life, and then she said, if I perish, I perish, but I'm going to do this. She just took that one step. And all of a sudden, everything began to change. Everything began to change. And the situation completely turned around in this amazing, this incredible way that we would have never foreseen. 
God, I pray that you would take our life and where we are. Lord, you'd be our shield and you'd lift up our head. In Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen.